Hello and welcome. You are listening to Nails and Hammers, a podcast where we talk to people about their journeys and understand how they take decisions and solve different problems. Our guest for today is Mark Coles, who is a professional cricket coach from New Zealand. We chat with Mark about his childhood, his dreams of becoming a professional cricketer, his personal struggles, his journey to Pakistan to coach the women's cricket team, and finally his suggestions on getting better day by day. hour by hour minute by minute we hope that you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed talking to mark and it's time to listen and learn hi mark uh, welcome to the nails and hammers podcast thank you for having me it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here and so before we begin so um, what are you doing these days and how is the pandemic treating you uh, oh, well it's been interesting hasn't it uh, we've, we've all been through some um interesting times in 2020 hopefully we never have a a year like this again but um i we, we've moved over to the sunshine coast from new zealand we did that in uh, february just before the pandemic hit um and in recent times i've just taken up a part-time role very part-time but director of cricket at sunshine coast cricket association so oh. it oversees all the cricket on on the sunny coast from uh from the middle of sort of Caloundra area all the way through to Gympie and and beyond so it's quite a big area but uh it's very enjoyable and keeping me reasonably busy nice so yeah could you tell us how so we'll start from the beginning of your life probably so could you tell us where did you grow up and uh, what did you study when you were growing up how how did it all start oh, well i grew up in a in a very tiny little <laughs> suburb <clears throat> um in the capital city of New Zealand Wellington called Linden which was was a very very probably only about 5000 people maybe back then and um uh that was where where I first sort of had my first experience of growing up I was way way back as far as I can remember was was dad really who obviously was playing cricket and and was uh, a decent cricketer in his time played for Wellington so that was my first memories of cricket and how i got the love for the game and so what was it like growing up as a son of a cricketer uh it was pretty hard because wellington uh even though it's the capital of new zealand probably was only at that stage when i was growing up 3 or 400,000 people so not many when you consider it the capital of of a country mm-hmm. um so it was difficult everybody kind of knew that michael coles was was playing for wellington and ended up playing for new zealand a and um you know you 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 soon you quickly became the son of michael rather than mark right um so when you got introduced to people it was oh so you're the son of michael coles rather than oh well, your own personality i guess so that 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 was that was that was quite hard for me to deal with and then there was obviously the expectation um perhaps of of me following in dad's footsteps and beyond and i remember the early ages probably around 19 and 11 where um people used to say to dad geez going to be a better player than you and that uh, you know i guess certain was going to be a better batter than dad cuz he was terrible but um I, i suppose that sort of put a little bit more pressure on you as well so who were your early heroes growing up except your father of course or the cricketing heroes <laughs> uh, well richard hadley definitely um and then you know i i sort of thought when i got to teenage years i think martin crow was obviously a really good player and i was lucky enough to be in the same uh squad 
and Martin was captain of Wellington back then when I was in my early teens. So oh. I sort of experienced what what he went through and, and um, how the New Zealand public was very, very hard on him as well. And I could relate that to my own sort of experiences, not quite at that high level where everybody used to throw stones when he didn't make any runs. And then when he when he did make runs for New Zealand, he was sort of expected to. So I, I could have, I, I kind of related to that um, the pressure that he was under in a, in, a, in a much, much smaller way, I guess. I mean, so you obviously had cricketing aspirations. And so what happened when you realized that you, you weren't going to make it as a, a cricketer? And how did that affect you? Oh, well, unfortunately, um, as a young teenage boy, and then you start, I started to have some back issues and the realization of the of the dream of playing for New Zealand probably wasn't going to happen around about 17 or 18 maybe 19 and so then you know bars and things came into operation for someone like me and I, I grew quite fond of bars um, uh, and uh, bars sort of became quite fond of me and particularly my wallet so um, my bank account wasn't very big <laughs> um, um, but my drinking account was quite high. So mm -hmm. that, that wasn't very good for me. Um, and, and as I've always said, you always find someone that wants to have a drink with you, unfortunately, when you get to that stage. So I found friends quite easily. They're probably just, maybe some of them weren't the, the, the right people to hang around with at that particular stage for me looking back. But when, you, when, when you're in that situation, they are your good mates. So that, that sort of took, took a toll. Um, it took a toll going into my coaching career as well. I, I, I sort of, I coached for the wrong reasons, I think. Um, so I coached to win all the time. And then when I didn't win, the spiral happened. And I, I didn't sort of realize that I wasn't in control of not winning or winning games of cricket. So um, it wasn't really me. It was the 11 blokes out there. And did I prepare them well enough? Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I didn't. Mm -hmm. So, what was your motivation about going into coaching? What were what were other things you did when you realized you weren't going to make it as a cricket player? So, how did coaching happen? Well, the injury happened when I was about 27, 28. The realization that I wouldn't, if I if I continued on with my back, um, then I wouldn't be probably walking by the time I was 60. It was quite a, a a painful injury and still to this day, you know, um, I've just been lifting a couple of things and it causes me some grief from time to time. So, and, and so you were a fast mover. Well, I thought I was, <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think all fast bowlers think they're really fast. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I was quick enough, but I wasn't the fastest. Mm -hmm. um, but look, I, I think that realization and I knew that umpiring wasn't for me because every time a bowler appealed and hit the batter on the pads, but if I was umpiring, it was probably going to be out because that's what I thought when I bowled. That, you know, if it hits the batter on the pads, he's clearly not good enough to hit it, so he's got to be out. So that, that wasn't an avenue that I wasn't was going to go down. And to be honest, I wouldn't have been able to stand that long for, for that long period of time. So I had to keep moving, otherwise my back gets pretty sore. Um, so then I thought, well, coaching is probably the next best thing. So I didn't want to score because my concentration wouldn't be long enough. So coaching was the next best thing. So I sort of went down that path. All right. So uh, what made you choose Pakistan? How did you uh, go to Pakistan? How did that happen? Um, well, I, I was watching them in 2017 at the ODI World Cup 
and they were getting beaten by every single team. Uh, Sri Lanka beat them, everybody beat them. They were just the easy beats. And I, I had worked in Perth at the Western Australian Cricket Association. So I contacted, and, and I was infrequently in touch with Mickey Arthur, but... Um, oh, I think he was I, in I, men's coach, right? Yeah, yeah, he was. So I, I sort of flicked him a message and he came back to me reasonably straight away and said, look, there are some issues. Um, and, and I think the fit would be really good, you know, that you, it's probably what they need. And I'll, I'll have a chat to the chairman, at, which at that stage was Najim Seti. Um, anyway, um, the, a call came in one night and um, I thought it was a, a crank caller. Um, but it ended up it ended up being a, a guy from Pakistan. And then um, I sort of, I tried to, I had to explain to my wife, Mel, who had only just been married for uh, probably a couple of weeks, three weeks maybe, that um, it wasn't a fake call um, and that I would be heading to Pakistan within a month after getting my visas. So that, that um, yeah, that was an interesting time. Interesting discussion. <laughs> so how did your family react to your news of saying that you wanted to go to Pakistan? Um, with terror? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, they were concerned because, um, you know, Pakistan has, a, has probably a reputation of uh, not being that safe. Um, and friends, uh, friends that knew me really well... Um, knew that I was slightly on, uh, slightly crazy, but this confirmed it for them. So <laughs> I, I had a little bit of explaining to do. Uh, and, and to be perfectly honest, I remember going up to Auckland, which was an hour's drive from where we were living and um, being absolutely petrified. And I needed Mel to go to the Emirates counter with me to actually really get me through the first process of getting on the plane because I was a quivering mess, and and even though I knew when I was coming back that I, I sort of had this tour um, for about four or five weeks, it was still pretty terrifying. So, anyway, I got on the plane, and it was the longest seventeen hours I've ever spent in my life to get to Dubai. Squashed in, uh, you know, it was about fifty-five D way down the back of the plane. Um, <laughs> And squashed in with two people either side. Again, my back not being very good. It was by the time I got to Dubai, I was just like like a little wee sardine in a tin. I had to uncoil myself, um, and then I had a little stopover. And the next minute, two thirty in the morning, I was on a plane full of Pakistanis that were kind of looking at me like, <laughs> "What's he doing on this plane? He's bought the wrong <laughs> plane. What a, what a fool!" Yeah. Um, and then we sort of landed in, in Lahore at 2.30 in the morning and it was hot. So having left New Zealand, it was like September, uh, late September, which is still pretty cool, about 15 degrees. And then landing in, in, um, in Dubai, firstly, was pretty hot. But then landing in Pakistan, the wave just hit me um, pretty hard at 30 degrees in the middle of the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. Holy heck, I didn't know what had hit me. So that was an experience. I think it was 54F according to that the news article. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew it was way down there. It, was, it yeah. certainly wasn't at the front in the really nice seats. I knew that because I walked past them <laughs> with great envy thinking you've got an easy ride here. Um, so, yeah, 17 hours later, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty sore. 
So how big was the culture shock? Had you ever been to Pakistan before in your life? How big was the culture shock of this landing in Lahore? Yeah, no, the, the closest to that side of the world that I'd been was Sri Lanka. Um, so okay. I sort of, I, I kind of knew a little bit how hot it was going to be, but I certainly didn't know uh, the culture that I was going to be facing. Um, and I didn't really know how the girls would react to me. And, and I did get an email from a lady that was going to meet me at the airport in Pakistan. When I landed in Dubai, I found out that she no longer worked for the PCB. So that was another little part of the equation that took me from um, sort of terrifying to absolutely terrified. Because I thought, yeah. well, who's meeting me at the airport if this lady no longer works there? Who is picking me up at the airport? Anyway, um, so then the first couple of days, I, I was getting my head around, you know, the culture, the heat, what I was going to eat, what was healthy, what wasn't, um, meeting people. And then I, and that was the first 24 to 48 hours. And then I had to meet the girls, which was um, terrifying for them, but even more terrifying for me. So we got put on these bulletproof bus buses with armed guards everywhere. There were more police than I'd ever seen in the whole of New Zealand, basically around me. Oh. And driven 45 minutes out of Lahore um, and into a beautiful, beautiful area, a, a country club, which is where our camp was going to be. Mm -hmm. We dumped our bags and then we were told that there was gonna be a meeting at five o'clock and I sort of walked in uh, and they were all sitting there. So they'd obviously been pre-prepped, get there early, right? Get there, make sure everybody's there early. And I walked in 10 minutes before and there was this sea of 30 girls just looking at me. And, and I could see some of them whispering away thinking, this guy is an idiot. <laughs> what a fool, what a fool. I mean, he's, he's taken over this team that we can't even win a game and this bloke's over here, he's not gonna last. So, and then the lady, the new lady that I'd only just met, she said, um, uh, okay, Mark, well, the floor's yours. And I thought, well, I, I don't know. I, I just didn't know what to say. Um, what do you say? And I sort of put together Assalamu Alaikum, which, which was very poor. Um, and then looks like, I, I think I know what he means. And then I started my conversation saying, look, I've got no idea what's gone on before and, and the issues that you've had. But I can tell you one thing, we're going to work really hard. Every time we play, we're going to try and get better and we're going to have some fun. And if at the end of it, whatever happens, happens, then, then let's just see. And we're, we're playing New Zealand in four or five weeks time in Dubai. So we'll just give them a, we'll just try our best and see what turns out. Mm -hmm. Perfect. How did you overcome the cultural barriers and the communication barriers while conversing with the team? I was very lucky that Sana Mia was, was uh, had a really good grasp on English. So she was, because the first part of that conversation, I think they, most of them were looking at me like, I, I don't even, he speaks really fast. I didn't even hear when he said hello. I couldn't make that out. But um, so she was a great help. Uh, Bismar was reasonable at English, but Sana was probably the best. Mm -hmm. And then of course we, day one, we had our, fielding session and it was about I don't know 11 15 and I was talking to one of the other coaches and I turned around and the girls were sitting down on the ground and <laughs> me being me said uh girls there's no time to sit down on the ground we you know we've got a lot of things to do and a lot to get through and then um the the 
the coach, the batting coach said to me, uh, that's prayers. So mm-hmm. that's what happens. They, you know, they take time out to pray. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's the first mistake <laughs> one of many. Um, so I said, oh, okay. So I just, from then on, I started to get the understanding of when the prayer times were. And I think probably one of the things that I am proud of was I really started to understand the culture, which gave me a feeling of when things happened and um, Eid and all those types of things and how important it was for them. So it was understanding their backgrounds a little bit more. Um, so that probably helped me a little bit um, and embracing it too, I think. So I always used to make sure that at around that time that we would always, when, when the loudspeaker came on, um, that, that we would, the call to prayer, that we would do that as well. So okay. I would sit down too. So did you, have a, yeah. did you have a plan going in of what you wanted to do with the team? Or how did that... Or- how did that change when you realized that these people, they don't have the kind of facilities that New Zealand cricketers do? So mm. again, I mentioned, I read in that article, you, you're telling people about those girls didn't have proper shoes to wear or some of them didn't have support from the families. So how did, how, how did that make you feel? Yeah, but that, that, that was the first thing that took me by surprise, just at, at the lack of real facilities that they had. Um, the lack of basic equipment, cricket balls and things like that, that um, the girls had to buy themselves, which I didn't know about until a little bit later. Um, and so that that really did surprise me for an international team. Like if you imagine that we were playing New Zealand, um, they, they don't have to buy their own cricket balls. The, and most of them are all sponsored, whereas our girls get, were given cricket bats for hand-me-downs from the guys. Um, and then as time went on, the, the ones that came from lower socioeconomic areas, um, and one in particular, um, she, she just had completely the wrong um, trainers in, in terms of her size and her cricket boots were too big for her. So, you know, it was, we just went out and got her a pair of trainers. I just said to our strength and conditioning coach at the time, I said, I can't do this. You know, I can't have someone turn up training and try and do a a yo-yo test with a shoe size that's two sizes too small. So we've got to give her the best chance to succeed. So we went down to the local mall and just bought her some. Um, and then he, we went and got her some cricket boots as well. So he got some cricket boots from England. So that, that, that was a very big surprise for me because a lot of international teams, as we well know now, just given their shoes and bats and don't have to worry about paying for cricket ball. So that was something that we had to adjust to. But again, I think that made us a little bit stronger that we were underdogs and we knew that we were before we even took the field, we were battling a lot of elements. Um, and, and that just, I think made us a little bit tougher, I guess that, that we had to band together and we had to be one. And um, we knew that things weren't the best for us as they are for the men. They were getting better, but they still weren't the best. So we just had to stick together as much as we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, uh, we just want to talk about your coaching experiences a bit. Um, so coaching is a very lonely journey. So how do you find happiness uh, in this process? It is. Look, I, and um, I, I knew that when I took it over that there would be some really lonely times for me because I didn't know the culture that well I I would often maybe I'd meet some of the players for dinner but I'd find that they 
were talking in Urdu and, and I, uh, I didn't really understand a lot of Urdu. I could make out some of it. And as time went on, I, I sort of made out part of the conversations, but I didn't really want to change them and make them feel uncomfortable that they had to speak in English all the time. So I found myself doing a lot of things uh, and, and by myself and um, preparing for the next day, which was probably quite handy because it gave me a lot of time to prepare for the next practice or understand our opposition so I could do a lot of that stuff. Um, found myself ringing home a lot and um, talking at home and Skyping and et cetera, et cetera. So um, that was good, but it was lonely too. Um, and when, you know, going back to the NCA, when Mickey was around and Grant Flowers was around and Grant Bradburn, that was good because I could go out with them places, but went on to it was pretty lonely. Um, Although Jamal Hussain came on near the end there, so he was a, he, he'd obviously played county cricket in England and was and was very good at speaking English and Pakistani. So we used to hang out together, and Andy Richards from Australia was there for a while. So that was quite good too. We always used to go out for dinner together. But I didn't want to make the girls feel that they had to speak English because I was around, and and I, I just felt that they needed their own time anyway. So it was some lonely times. So coming to the on-field performances, do you sometimes get frustrated when players don't perform according to expectations repeatedly? Uh, how do you manage that if a player is not doing how you expect them to do? Oh, look, I, I, I think I learned a lot about my coaching um, over there because you, you have to understand the individual and where they've come from. And I yeah. think the battle was getting out on the field. So demanding that they score more runs or that they played a poor shot. We, we've got to, and we go back to the facilities, the bats, the, the gear and things. It was about caring for them and, and um, encouraging them and being positive and, um, and just trying to make their roles very, very clear so they understood what their role was. I think that was a really, really important part of our success, that the little bit of a success that we had was giving them very clear game plans and then allowing them to play that. And look, if it goes wrong, that's the game of cricket. We play the hardest game in the world. So we have to understand that sometimes it's not always going to be right. But when they lost, I don't think it was a brow beating exercise. Uh, it was about how do we, how do we get them to forget about that loss, learn from it, but then in two days' time be, be better than what we were and, and really try and improve. So um, asking questions is a really good thing and getting them to try and come up with the answers is, is, was probably one of our things that we encouraged a lot in that group. Mm -hmm. I mean, like when the team loses, the coach must have a lot of negative emotions. They must be overthinking. So how can you motivate someone when you yourself are not so happy? Yeah, well, there was well, there was a couple of times that I did it, but there was one time in Dubai when we played New Zealand and I just felt we were so close. We lost the first ODI by seven runs and then we really got beaten in the, in the, second, the second ODI. Um, and I just felt that the girls had gone back again. So they were very confident after the first, but we should have won the first one. And just with a lack of experience, um, we missed out. And then New Zealand played really well and beat us and... Divine and Bates got run. So I, I was sitting in the in Dubai in the hotel and I thought, well, I can't really go for a drink with my friend alcohol because that's not a great thing in Dubai. And I wasn't really into that at that stage. But the one thing that I did like was ice cream. And I knew there was a really good ice cream place. So I thought, I don't want to be lonely anymore. So I called a team meeting 
And I was quite stern in my message. I said, right, everybody meet downstairs, 7.15, all staff included. <laughs> and so down they came, 15 girls and five staff, very timid looking at me and where, what are we doing and where are we going? I said, just follow me, we're off. And then we ended up in the mall and, and at this ice cream place that we'd been to for dinner a couple of nights beforehand um, to start the series against New Zealand. And they were all looking at me and I said, I'd already organised it, pre-organised it with the guy. And I said, right, chocolate, strawberry or vanilla. Those are the three flavours that he had. And they looked at me like, he is crazy. This guy's not going to last. <laughs> like he's going home at the end of this. We won't see this bug again. And they said, free, mufta. And I said, yes, mufta. <laughs> um, oh. So anyway, strawberry was reasonably popular. Chocolate was the most popular. Strawberry was, <laughs> was pretty popular. Vanilla, not many takers on vanilla at all. Yeah. And, and that was it. I just said, then they looked and said, is that it? And I said, yeah. Well, what do we do now? I said, well, there's a thousand shops at this place. You can either go shopping, go back to sleep or do whatever you want to do. Um, but meeting's over. And, and that sort of just, I guess, I guess got rid of the disappointment um, and was just one way of, of just forgetting about things and, and knew that we had a big game against New Zealand the next day. Um, and, we, and we won for the first time. About this time last year, this time three years ago, we beat them. Um, and, and it was a great day. You know, that day I'll never forget because it was almost like for these girls winning the World Cup because they'd been beaten seven, yeah. eight, nine. We'd been beaten nine times in a row. It's a 10th oh, time yeah. lucky. And they happened to win this game. Well, I've never seen anything like it. Um, and, and so it was a great feeling. And then we did it again when we were, we'd been beaten badly in Dubai again by the West Indies in the first ODI. But some of the girls that had been to Dubai for the New Zealand series, they knew, they said, we're going for ice cream, aren't we? And I said, to see. And so they caught on. And then strangely enough, for whatever reason, we, we won that series too. So I don't know whether it was the ice cream or something there might be something in that but it was just a way of really getting rid of the disappointment and the, um and just saying let's bin this and get on with it and then with you know the sun will come up tomorrow and we all all liked ice cream <laughs> okay so that's a good segue to the next part of this we want to move on to is mark as a person so what do you think is the purpose of life it's just a very vague broad question Oh, look, I think, you know, as we've talked about before, 2020's come up with some really big challenges for, for humans um, all across the globe. And who would have thought this time last year that where some countries are in lockdown and um, everything. But look, I, I think really you've got to, you've got to enjoy your family. Um, uh, and I think just try and be, I always used to say to the girls, if we can just be 1% better individually every day and um, whether it's cricket or life or whatever it might be and then if you're in a team situation and you've got a squad of 15 on tour then you're 15 percent better as cricketers and then as a group you're 15 percent better as a team and so that or one percent better as cricketers 15 percent better as a team so that really I guess if you just can, you're always going to make mistakes and, and some of the mistakes that you, you make and I've made a gazillion mistakes, but I guess if you can learn by them, some of them anyway, and then just keep moving forward, 
and being the best that you can be. And I always say to my daughters when they go off to school, just be the best you can be. That's all you can do. That's all you can do and ask for. Uh, and like you want to talk about like some of the dark phases of your life as well. So uh, how did like leisurely drinking turn into alcoholism? Well, I, I, I look, I, I think I'm probably uh, maybe a binge drinker. So I, I'm if I get into uh, an area where uh, there's fun times going ahead, that's a very dangerous situation for me. Um, so if I'm around the, the family, then I'm okay. But if I'm around an area where there's a group situation, it can be quite a dangerous thing for me. And I guess when you go through disappointments in life, um, as I said previously, I just touched on it. It can be that the one thing with alcohol, it never argues with you and it's always available in New Zealand and Australia and other countries. So it's always accessible. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not a great thing. It doesn't, at the time, you think that it solves your issues and your problems and um, winning, losing, bad form and cricket, things that go on in everyday life. But uh, it, it, long term, it's A, it's not great for your health, and B, it's not a, not a uh, solution to your problems. So, um, And I, I think these days, we, you know, with the situation that we're in, we really need to to be mindful of, of things that are going on and um, try and solve your problems in a different way. Maybe ice cream's the solution. Right. <laughs> so what do you think was the lowest, the darkest point of your life? Uh, probably uh, before I went to Pakistan, I got into a really bad, bad space. There was stuff going on. At work back in New Zealand, which was probably when you look back, I think really out of my control. Um, and I got into a very, very bad dark area. Um, and again, alcohol played a, a massive part in that. Um, and took me to a, to a place that uh, I, I just really made some decisions that things weren't gonna be any good and I might as well have been out of here than being in here. Um, uh, but thankfully, you know, Melanie, my wife, and um, saved me really. And then, and then, as I've publicly said, that I, I, I honestly believe that, for whatever reason and whoever and whatever, that that decision to type out that email one day um, to Mickey, and then for that phone call to happen, and for me to get on that plane. Um, and then for the next two and a bit years of my life to go backwards and forwards and be associated with some young ladies that every day had their own issues, um, not only cricket, but in their own personal lives, um, certainly uh, saved me and gave me a, a greater uh, enjoyment and a greater understanding of life and how lucky we are um, to live what we do every day and to be able to play this great game and certainly build better relationships with people than, I, than I'd ever done in the past. So that I'll always be thankful for. Um, the fact that I met these 30 young ladies um, across Pakistan, uh, I'll always be thankful for as well. And uh, always, you know, I always keep in touch with them. Um, and how they're going and, and we'll always support them and 
and watch out for them, I guess. So what are some of, some of the biggest lessons you got from them? <laughs> you know what? That even when they were facing their dilemmas in their own personal lives and their own battles with their cricket and sometimes the battles that they had with the organisation, although that's changing, obviously, with Wasim Khan and there's done a great job now to get it around. But previously, before that, it was a little bit helter-skelter. Um, that they were always happy and they always wanted to come to cricket and they always wanted to get better. And they always smiled, you know, and um, they never really were that hard, um, angry or anything. They just wanted to play cricket. And in fact, a lot of the time you had to try and stop them because they just wanted to keep practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And my, my old energy levels were getting lower and lower and lower and lower. So we sort of had to put a cap on practice sometimes, but that's what they loved and that's what they wanted to do. Fitness was a little bit different. They weren't so keen on that, but not many people are though. But um, look, I think it was just the joy of them seeing them every day and their smiling faces and, and, um, and the fact that some of them were really battling in their own personal lives with their own family situations. Um, and cricket was, in fact, for some of them, cricket was the money earner for some of these girls, for their families. So you took a major life decision of moving to a country I've never been to before on a, basically on a whim. You didn't really know a lot about it and um, you just went on. So would you do it again if you had the chance and would you recommend other people take major life decisions like this on a whim? I would. I would do it again. Um, I'd do it, obviously, somewhere else, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, or um, potentially other places. But I would do it again because for me, um, it, it, helped, it helped me and I always felt that I was giving back to the game um, and trying to, to trying to get players better. So I always thought, and I knew that every day that I had to be happy, even though I might I might have been missing home I was 18,000 kilometres away from home with a seven-hour time difference. Um, but I always knew that I had to get up even though I, I might not have been feeling my best um, and things were getting on top of me. Um, so I just felt for me that it was the best thing that I've ever done. Um, and I always always felt great pride and reward and um, that I'd contributed at the end of a practice or at the end of a game or at the end of a series. So for me, that was a really big thing. Right. And then like, who are some of the people in your life you're most grateful for? Uh, parents, you know, I mean, there was a lot of talk about dad, but mum was, mum was the, was the brick in the wall, so to speak, in a nice way. I don't think she'd like me calling her a brick, but, um, she was the stable base around uh, cricket. You know, she she did a lot of carrying and dropping off while I, you know, to dad and watching him and putting up with cricket, 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 cricket. And um, she doesn't like the game, strangely enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, you know, in later years, she's followed me and what I've been doing with the girls. And um, uh, you know, I, I I hope that I've made them proud. I I certainly gave it my best shot um, because I, I, I've probably disappointed them throughout some of their life. But um, hopefully these last two or three years, I've been able to make them proud of me and um, and appreciate the things that, 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 that they've done for me, I guess, to get 
me where I am at the moment. Uh, and like lastly, like so, if if you could go back seven years, uh, what would you tell yourself? Oh, that's a really good question, Kushal. Uh, well, I I think I'd say that there's there's um, there's always a bright side of what doom and gloom is. Um, you've just got to battle through minute by minute, hour by hour. And I don't think when you're in a place where things aren't so good that you can look too far forward. I think you've just got to look and go, right, what am I going to do in the next hour? And one thing I would say is do things um, that will make yourself feel happy. Now, whether that's go for a walk, um, tea, have a tea, have a coffee, have your favorite ice cream, um, uh, whatever it might be, try and do something for yourself that's going to make you happy. Um, but I, I, I honestly believe um, that you will get through things, but you've just got to break it down and not think through too, too far ahead and try and think that while it might be disappointing, you're in your really bad space at this point in time. Um, one door closes, there'll be something that'll open, but it might take you a little bit of time. So to get through to that period of time, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, and then something will happen. I always believe that good things happen to good people. Karma. Karma is a big thing. You are what you feed the universe sometimes. Okay. And, and we are at the last section of the podcast. So it's a, it's a rapid fire segment. Uh, I mean, so like, you know, you just say whatever that comes first to your mind, um, your uh, your favorite Pakistani dish? Chicken biryani. 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 And the other favorite dish, which I'll just tell you a very, very quick story about. I don't want to waste your time. The little wee sugar balls. I can't remember what they're called. Rasgulla? Gulab jamun. Yes. Gula. Yes, yes, yes. So on this first tour of New Zealand where we were staying and, and we were on the camp and things, the girl said, you've got to try this dessert. Fantastic dessert. Very sugar. Do you like sweet things? She said, love sweet things. Yeah. Love them. Yeah. I had six or seven of these things. Oh, yeah. They're good, yeah. Oh, they're good, all right. And then yeah. um, I went to bed and I thought, right, I'm really, really tired. Well, I thought I was really tired. By four o'clock in the morning, I was still wide awake. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the girls then said to me the next day, I said, what, you know, those sugary, those things that I had left, those really nice things. I said, how much sugar was in those? Oh, and they just laughed. <laughs> I said, girls, I was up till four o'clock in the morning. I could have been going for a marathon and still been going. I've yep. never, uh, so I was then very cautious from that moment on only to have one or two. Yeah. But my word, they were yummy. And that syrup and that, oh, wow, they were good. But um, not so good if you wanted to go to sleep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but that, that was a really sweet dish. And obviously the biryani is, um, was, was, was a really good one too. Yes. So how do you like to unwind? Uh, not, not by doing that. No, look, I love watching <laughs> cricket in all sports. Um I think family's really important now and um, just spending time with the girls and trying to stay off phone calls and social medias and things like that, which can be hard, I guess. But 
trying to spend time with them. And, and because I've missed a few birthdays and Christmases and things like that, um, I think quality family time is really important too. And, um, and, and after two and a bit years trying to get to, to, you know, get back into the family life and, um, and routines and things and, mm -hmm. you know, understanding that you get told off a lot by putting clothes down in the wrong places and, you know, put your laundry away and all of that sort of stuff. So I'm getting used to that now. It's taken me yeah. a while. <laughs> yep. But no, it's great. Your, family. Your favorite cricketing ground? Oh, my favorite cricketing ground. Um, well, Pukakura Park in New Plymouth in New Zealand. I was lucky enough to play there. Um, beautiful little ground in New Zealand. I love it. The Basin Reserve is another, obviously, um, in Wellington, New Zealand, and my home ground is a favourite. Um, but I was lucky enough last year, um, before I left, I was hosted and said goodbye to um, at Gaddafi Stadium when uh, we had that disastrous Pakistan versus Sri Lanka, and Pakistan lost 3-0 to Sri Lanka. But a... 80% full Gaddafi Stadium. Oh, the atmosphere wow. is wonderful. Electric. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget that, you know, the, the real intensity of, of Pakistan, you know, um, and they're, they're just so, yeah, this, the loyalty is just unbelievable. You don't get that in New Zealand with cricket crowds. Um, yep. Probably English soccer crowds would be a, a comparison, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of um, when someone doesn't make any runs that they're not very good and they should be not selected. And then uh, I guess when they do make runs, they're the best player in the world and, and should have always been in the team. So just that real passion and enthusiasm mm -hmm. and loyalty. That, 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 that. And just speaking of intensity a bit, how was watching India versus Pakistan like? Ah, well, very briefly, I, I we played India in the... Um, Asia Cup in Kuala Lumpur and I remember saying to I just said to the girls look you know let's just relax here it's just another game of cricket and I remember Sana coming to me and she said Mark you're wrong this isn't another game of cricket this is it like this is it she said you'll be surprised tomorrow that stand in Kuala Lumpur will be full I said Kuala Lumpur no 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 capacity is only 5,000 well it was full with about half an hour to 40 minutes to go, the place was chock-a-block. And wonderful, one, the drums, the, the music, the flags, everything. And at the end of the game, look, we lost. Um, we didn't play very well that day. But even in the West Indies, when we played them at the World Cup, I think, bar maybe the final, that was the biggest crowd. And that was in Guyana. I thought, no one can turn up. And all of a sudden, there's people everywhere. Um, and certainly in KL, they had to they had to call more police because oh, they'd underestimated the, the crowd. So all of a sudden, more police, Malaysian police came, and there were dogs everywhere, police dogs, and um, but just a, such a cool atmosphere. Even though we were on the losing side, um, it was just such a cool atmosphere. And I just really, really wish that 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 is the biggest rivalry in cricket. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, just. It, it breaks my heart that that um, that can't be for the sake of the two countries that it just can't be resurrected. It just play cricket because it causes so, it, it just generates so much interest in the world. The world. Yeah. Look, I 
I would sit and watch Pakistan versus India for hours just for the entertainment value of seeing people in the crowd. I know that we can't do it at the moment with the COVID situation, but they have to be the two most passionate countries in the world when it comes to cricket. So I'd love to see that happen again. I really, really would. Yeah. So anything new you have picked up during the last six months, a new hobby or something? Um, lockdowns? Oh, look, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm going to listen to a lot of Hammer and Nails at the moment, I think. I'm very interested in what you guys are doing. I think that's fantastic what you guys are doing. I really do. I think it's great. So I'm going to start listening to your podcasts. I think go for a lot of walks now to give me peace of mind and center myself um, and listen to podcasts and people speaking and um, just try and stay as positive as you can in, situation, in the situation that we're all in at the moment, I think that's really important and then as I said before you know I, I think just trying to get through day by day and and then maybe something might open up for me and I'd like to think that I'd be able to contribute to maybe another nation and with the experiences that I've had um, and just keep building relationships with people and um, appreciating um, people for what they are and who they are I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, your favorite place in Pakistan? Oh, now that's interesting. My favorite place in Pakistan. Well, I spend a lot of time in Lahore. I think that's a beautiful city. Um, I think Karachi is a, a really wonderful, vibrant city. It never stops. Um, I like that. Islamabad, I felt, was a really pretty city. Um, and Multan up in the mountains was, was quite... Um, had its own uniqueness uh, and, and some really, really pretty parts. Look, I just wish I'd gone to the northern parts of Pakistan because I think that is from the photos I've seen, um, Diana Baig lived in Gilgit, and I just love saying Gilgit, Gilgit, love it. Um, but she, she showed me some photos of where she lives. Oh, wow, it is the closest thing that I've seen to New Zealand in terms of the countryside but I think even more prettier than New Zealand and in terms of it just really a lot of it hasn't been touched. And uh, I, I just think Pakistan is, is, is a lot, it's underestimated the, 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 the beautifulness of, of the place and the people. And um, yeah, yeah I, 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 look, I'd go back. I, I, I would have no fear in going back to visit um, and, and just, meeting up with people again and trying to get up into that northern area and experience the beautifulness of of where that is okay so uh, again so from the players you have coached recently in the past few years some can you tell us some of uh, some of whom do can make it big in the next few years well look sana was probably i mean i know that she's retired now but she was a real uh you know, she's the pioneer, obviously, and ended up be becoming number one bowler in the world, which I think was a great credit to her, you know, to, to work really hard and get back from being criticised as captain after that terrible World Cup to being number one a year and a half later. Um, I, I, Nita Dars obviously played in the Big Bash last year, the WBBL. Um, she's she's a very, very talented, um, yeah. uh, certainly T20, and getting to understand her one-day game. But... This girl, Riaz, good player, Alia Riaz, she's one of the stronger girls in the Pakistan setup. 
Um, she's a really good cricketer, a very another T20 player that can can hit a big ball. Um, Moniba, a little left-hander, I think she's starting yeah. to find herself now uh, a little bit. Iram Javid hits a really big ball. Um, so there, there's some of the talented ones coming through. And then obviously you've got Bismar Maruf, who, um, you know, is a consistent performer. And Javeria Khan is a consistent performer. But in terms of excitement and younger players coming through, I think Riaz, Iram Javid, um, Arub Shah was the girl that, that you know, I, I think really started to come into her own in terms of this young leg spinner. 16, 17, I think she might be now. Um, and she's one to keep an eye on as well. So there's a little bit of excitement in Pakistan. If we can get the systems in place quickly and up and running, then they've got a chance of certainly pushing some of the big teams. If the systems aren't in place and there's no real pathway, then there could be some issues for them. And the last question of the podcast. So if you had to step into someone's shoes, uh, who would that be? Uh, in terms of cricket coaching? Anything. Oh, look, I, I've got a lot of guys that I, I find really interesting in the coaching circles. Um, I think I'd rather, you know what? I think I'd rather step into my own shoes when I was younger and then start again with what I know now. So I don't think I'd want to be someone else. I think I'd want to be myself, but go all the way back to when I was five and, and understand that being the son of someone isn't, isn't you know, you just gotta be your own person and, and try and fix up the mistakes that, I, that I've made and, and be what I am now, which is, which is a better person than what I was five years ago, three years ago. So wouldn't that, that be amazing? Uh, yeah, I guess we all kind of think, God, if only I could yeah. do that. Oh, <laughs> I'd do that differently, that differently, and that differently. But yeah. um, I don't think I'd want to be anybody else. There are certainly periods of time in my life where I just thought, oh my I think back now where I think if only I knew what I knew now, you know, back then I would have changed things. But I think I'm reasonably happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So, I mean, this is the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you, Mark, for your time. And I hope you Pleasure. enjoyed it as much as we did talking to you. Thanks I so did. Much. Thank you Bye. so much for having me. And um, yeah. I look forward to following you two guys now and, and love, as I said, what you were doing before. Just fantastic that you're making a difference with people. And um, I really appreciate the fact that you've, you're very humbled and appreciate the fact that you've got me on and uh, all the very best. I hope it's not the last time that we keep in touch either. Of course. Sure. Sure. Yep. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.